I feel like I'm gleaning craft tips uh, every time I talk to somebody about craft. And from the writing process point of view, I think in many cases, it's made me feel comfortable with the process I have. Hello, and welcome to The Writer's Mindset with me, Christina Adams, and Millie, who decided to crash, and not Ellie this week, as she's lost her voice. This week, we're talking to Matty Dalrymple, all about podcasting for authors. Our interviewee this week is Matty Dalrymple. Matty is a thriller and suspense author who lives with her husband and their dogs in Chester County, Pennsylvania. She enjoys vacationing on Mount Desert Island in Maine and Sedona in Arizona, and these locations provide settings for her work. Matty is also a member of Sisters in Crime and the Brandywine Valley Writers Group. And she hosts the Indie Author Podcast, and that's Indie with a Y. I was a guest on there recently talking about writing myths, so after you've given this a listen, do go check that out. I'll include a link in the notes as well. I spoke to Matty about the pros and cons of podcasting for authors, regardless of genre. If you find this episode valuable, you can support the writer's mindset on Patreon. You'll get early access to episodes, bonus content, and our undying gratitude for supporting all the work that goes into creating these episodes to inspire and motivate you. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash writer's mindset. This week, I have been doing a lot of editing, both on The Mummy's Curse and Hollywood Heartbreak. And I found it easy to edit Hollywood Destiny and The Ghost Call at the same time. But I'm not finding that's the case with these two. And I don't know why, but flitting between the two is just not working for me. And I think in future, it's not something I'm going to do, but I've got deadlines that I've got to stick to now. So I'm going to have to for now. But yeah, even though they're in the same genre, I guess because they're in similar states and require similar amounts of work, it's harder. But my goal is still to publish them both by the end of this year. And then I think I'm just going to go back to the morning writing routines and spacing out my writing and editing and managing my time more but I feel like I'm in a better place to be managing my time at the moment like I'm not I still feel a little bit overwhelmed but not as much as I did and I hope that that will continue but I know that it probably won't because I do get overwhelmed sometimes and I do get distracted by shiny objects and you know it is an ongoing battle to stay productive particularly when the main person you're accountable to is yourself and there's nothing wrong with having those relapses or struggling sometimes. And I just want you to know that if you ever do feel overwhelmed or like you're struggling, you really aren't alone. Please do come join us in the Facebook group, which is writerscookbook.com forward slash Facebook group. We've all been there. We all understand it. We all support each other. So please do reach out and don't be afraid to ask for help or just take some time to chill if you're feeling overwhelmed. There's no harm in it. So then let's go join Natty. Today, I am joined by Matty Dalrymple of the Indie Author Podcast. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. So tell us a little bit about you and your podcast. My first foray into the writing and publishing world was with fiction. So I write two series, the Anne Kinnear Suspense Novels and Suspense Shorts. And I have my latest Anne Kinnear Suspense novel here, A Furnace for Your Foe. It starts out with a sense of death. And uh, the other series I have is the Lizzie Ballard Thrillers, uh, Rock, Paper, Scissors, Snakes and Ladders, and the Iron Ring. And then, as I mentioned, I also have um, a number of Ann Kinnear Suspense shorts. But in 2016, I think, I got into the podcasting world, and I also got into the nonfiction world as the indie author, indie with a Y, I-N-D-Y, and uh, explore the writing craft and the publishing voyage, much as uh, you have the, the cookbook metaphor. Uh, for that, I've followed the nautical metaphor. And so I have a podcast called The Indie Author and a couple of nonfiction books. And I also uh, speak on uh, writing and publishing. Nice. I think the metaphors definitely help remind you that this is an ongoing journey, as you say, with the voyage thing. Yep. Because some people often think when they've published that first book, it's the end and it's really not. It's the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. The, there's no aspect of writing or publishing that I've encountered that doesn't have a great analogy in the uh nautical world so I haven't tapped it out yet <laughs> <laughs> yeah for us it's cars and cooking <laughs> although my yeah. co-host doesn't actually drive so I think a lot of my car analogies go over her head but I'm, like, I'm gonna do it I, I'm surrounded by cars all the time so I'm gonna do it 
Well, I just had a podcast interview with Sasha Black, the rebel author, mm -hmm. and yep. um, she had a great analogy for characters to uh, the body. So that the, oh, yeah. the yeah, hero I think is I've the heart yeah. and the side characters are like the veins of the arteries. It was really a, a very illuminating metaphor. So that can really help to have yeah. something else outside writing and publishing to compare it to. Yeah, it definitely helps you contextualize things, particularly if you're new to it and you're trying to get to grips with it as much as possible before you really dive in. So why did you decide to start your podcast then? When I first started it, it was really a combination. Well, I shouldn't say that. It still is this. A combination of networking and learning. So I started it basically with guests from the writers group that I belong to. And it was at the time I was still working my full-time day job. And I would just put out episodes when I met a person in, through the writer's group that had an interesting area of expertise that I wanted to learn about or that I wanted to share with the other members, basically, of the writer's group. So, you know, someone who is very good at doing um, readings, someone else who was in the small publisher arena. So it was really networking and learning. And I would say those are still my primary drivers for the podcast. It's just, you know, the scope has expanded a little bit, but that was what really interested me to begin with. Yeah, I totally get that. I found it to be a really good networking tool. And I don't know why, but it never occurred to me when I started. I'm like, why didn't I do this sooner? I get to talk to people about writing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and then uh, kindly share out that information with other people who can benefit from it. Yeah, which is exactly why I started the Writer's Cookbook. Like, when was it? Seven years ago? Eight years ago? 2014, whenever that was. And then you almost forget that when you've been doing it for so long, I think. And it's nice to remind yourself and almost go back to the beginning. Or it was for me anyway. Yeah, yeah about relooking at your at your motives for it or your yeah. goals for it. Yeah. Yeah. So would you say then those are the biggest benefits of podcasting for writers? Would you say there are any more? Well, I think that the the two other obvious ones are I'm I'm emphasizing the selfish <laughs> motivations, which are networking and learning. There is the uh, unselfish motivation of then sharing that information, both unselfish for the people who are getting it and unselfish uh, for the person who's sharing the information. So you know, they can share it once and, and hopefully have it be shared across, you know, dozens or hundreds or thousands of, of people through that one effort. And then, of course, the other selfish reason is making money, uh, the whole monetization idea. And, you know, maybe we'll get to that later. But I think those are the primary drivers. Um, as I said, I have a, a book called The Indie Author's Guide to Podcasting for Authors, and it is uh, creating connections, the networking aspect, creating community, reaching out to the people you want to reach, and income. What would you say then on the flip side is the hardest part about podcasting? Well, I have found that the hardest part is balancing the time and effort with the benefit both to myself and to my listeners and and followers. So early on, I started using um, Descript. Descript, or I guess they actually pronounce it Descript, is the tool I use to edit my audio and video for my podcast. And it also creates an automated transcript. And so I thought, oh, this is great. I'll put up the transcript. And I probably should have thought that through a little more thoroughly because once I did it, like once you offer something, it's harder to pull it back because people get used to it. But I found I was spending, I was probably spending, I don't know, like eight hours on editing for every hour of podcast, you know, finished hours of podcast time yeah. that I was putting out, which was really not a supportable schedule. And so over time, I reduced that somewhat, both because I've gotten better at using Descript. And also I'm trying to be better about balancing the putting out a really polished uh, final product, which of course is has its benefits, but kind of has its downsides too, because it not only takes me a lot of time, but I also think that at some point you polish it up so much, you lose something from what the guest is saying. So one of the challenges, one of the things that's been hardest for me with a podcast is balancing that producing a very polished end product with the time it's taking me, and then looking at what I think will benefit the um, the listeners the most. So I was surprised when I found out that a lot of the people are reading the transcripts. They're not uh, they're not listening to the podcast, and that may be a function that you know for the last year people haven't been commuting to work as much as they used to. But once I found that, then I didn't want to pull back on providing a highly polished transcript, even if I was providing 
you know, a somewhat more naturalistic audio and video experience. So I'm still wrestling with that. And another thing that I've wrestled with a bit in terms of managing the time versus benefit to me and my my followers ratio is managing like patronage options. And I'd be curious to, to get your take on this because, you know, you go onto these platforms like Patreon and they encourage you to have many different levels of patronage rewards, depending on how much uh, you're making from each of those levels. And I just found it was getting to be too much of a time sink to manage that. And just, in fact, just this week on uh, the podcast, I actually overhauled my patronage options to say, listen, if you give me anything, you're going to get a heartfelt thank you on the podcast and you're going to get access to a private Facebook group. So just determine your contribution based on the value you're getting from the podcast and the amount you're willing to give. Not like, oh, if I give another dollar, I'll get a t-shirt. What has your experience been on that? Because I'm still wrestling with this. Yeah, we kind of are as well, because we only set up our Patreon in March or April when we launched season two, and we're on season three now. And so we were definitely kind of toying with the benefits, and we are going to overhaul ours, actually. I keep getting to update them, but we're going to change them and kind of strip it back and simplify it, because maintaining like all of the bonus content and uploading the episodes early for people and really engaging that community it is hard and my boyfriend linked me to a podcast episode actually um that was an interview with the creator of patreon and he actually talks about what works most effectively for people on there and he did say most people they're not really paying for the benefits they're paying to support creators that they love exactly so they don't want loads and loads of benefits they just want to go i love you have some money kind of the same as when they buy a book. I'm very glad to hear that somebody from Patreon was saying that because that's my feeling exactly. And I know that it's dangerous to generalize from your own attitude to other ones, but that's my position exactly. Like, I don't really want the t-shirt. I just want to say thank you to the people who are providing the content. I can send you a link to that podcast if you want, and I'll drop it into yeah. the show notes for any listeners who want to check it out. That would be fantastic. And the other reason that I like that approach of of scaling back on the benefits a bit is that I always felt guilty. So for time... I would post the uh, an outtake or an excerpt, like at the end of an interview with a guest, I would say, is there anything else you want to talk about for a couple of minutes that will be a patron-only extra? And I would post that, you know, on patron-only page. But every time I did that, I felt bad that I wasn't just sharing that with everybody. And I thought, this is kind of, it's kind of uncomfortable to be holding back information uh, for that. So yeah, I'll be very interested to listen to that uh, Patreon It's funny you should say that because... Like I say, I haven't listened to the episode yet. I've discussed it with my boyfriend and he was saying one of the tips the creator of Patreon suggested is to only release half a podcast episode and give the full episode to patrons only. And I am I talked about this with my co-host. I'm like, that feels wrong. Yeah, it does feel it feels wrong. feels slimy. Yeah. I don't know if that's just me. No, I totally agree Agree with you. And I think that, that not doing that, I hope, will redound positively. <laughs> those of us who aren't doing that where people are saying you know I appreciate that they're sharing all the information that they have yeah because I mean it doesn't cost a lot to support a podcast on Patreon a lot of the time but then you you know it does help to keep the podcast going and show people that you are providing value because I know oh what's the stat something like more than 70% of podcasts don't last more than 10 episodes yeah, because people either lose momentum or they get bored or they don't grow as fast as they want to or whatever their expectations and goals are. And when you look at those stats, it's pretty mad to think that our podcast is already in that top like 10, 20, whatever percent. And we only started in January. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, the, the statistic, I was never able to track this down definitively, but that 70 percent don't go past seven episodes. So, yeah. And in my book, The Indie Author's Guide to Podcasting for Authors, I talk about that, like think through, sit down and write down topics you'd like to address. And if you can't come up with more than seven, you should probably like just put it aside for a little while because there's enough startup effort and time that you don't want to dive into it unless you're feeling kind of comfortable that it's going to be something you're going to like to do. Yeah, I think that's why having guests can be useful because then they do a lot of the content creation for you. Yeah. Yeah. I I certainly found it easier since we've been having guests on because aside from coming up with the questions, everything else is on the guest and just having a conversation. Whereas before we would have like pages and pages of bullet pointed notes. And sometimes I would dictate the notes to give my hands a break. And then it came out sounding too much like a transcript (laughs) because I was dictating it. Yeah. I can't imagine trying to do 
a solo show or even a show with one other person. And I know that uh, one of the podcasts that I used to listen to religiously was the career author with Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon. And, you know, within the last year or so, I guess they have shut down that one and uh, moved on to Writer's Inc. with J.D. Barker. But you know, when they were when they were doing their final episodes, they would say, you know, we've talked about pretty much like how many times can you talk about the importance of having a book cover? And I was like, yeah, because like, God bless you. You two can't be expected to do it. And I kind of put in a little plug for having them add um, guests because I love the dynamic of that podcast. But I think they had different different goals that were driving their decision to close that down. But yeah, I can't even imagine not having guests. No, it's a uh... Yeah, I've definitely found it a lot easier and a lot quicker than yeah. um, I did a few months ago. And that, like I say, that was part of the decision because my co-host is doing a master's degree at the moment and she's in dissertation mode. So it gives her a break to focus on her dissertation because we're not spending all that time planning or even recording. We just kind of sandwich the interviews in with an intro and an ending. And then yep. I do the recording during the day when she's at work. So it's a lot easier. Well, that is definitely a pro of, of teaming up with someone, both because you have that sort of mutual responsibility, like having a buddy that you go to the gym with. It's a little <laughs> harder to get up in the morning and say, I don't think I'm going to do it today. But also that everybody has those peaks and valleys of other things you have to take care of. And it's nice if you can pair up with someone that you can work with to accommodate that. Yeah. And having her do the show notes again makes my life easier because I don't have to keep listening to my own voice repeatedly. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever find that like, a, like you just can't stand listening to your own voice anymore? I think I got used to it. Like I hated listening to my voice at all to begin with, but after a while you do get used to it. And so that hasn't been as much of a challenge as I might've thought it was going to be when I went into <laughs> it. And also the way I use, um, the editing software Descript is, I think it's probably intrinsically different than if people are using actual, you know, traditional audio or video editing, because you just edit the trans, it creates a transcript for you, you edit the transcript. And as you edit the transcript, it's editing the audio and video as well as the text. And so it's not as if I have to usually listen to the same sentence over and over again, like that gets really old really fast. But normally, I can get around having to do that using Descript. Yeah, we tried Descript for one of our episodes and it's definitely something we would consider going back to, I think, especially given I can't currently edit on my MacBook because it can't handle it. But I refuse uh, to buy a new one until they bring out the new laptops. <laughs> yeah, I actually, one of the challenges I had both with using um, Descript and also for the podcast and also doing recordings for, I was trying to do a, a recording of my audiobook. I mean, I was trying to do an audiobook of one of my nonfiction books and my old MacBook, it labored so much that the fan would immediately spin up and it became like unmanageable to record with the, <laughs> with the MacBook pouring along. So I got one of those like M1 models or whatever it is that's fanless. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. Very nice. Yeah, I'm holding out the 13-inch MacBook Pro with the M1 chip, and I think it's going to be like one of the last devices that they bring out and it's killing me because my keyboard's broken. <laughs> Oh no! But I've, I've um, got my boyfriend's old PC, so I do a lot of stuff on there instead. Don't like being a PC person, but I'll try. No, it. I yeah. agree. I agree. <laughs> so, when you started your podcast, and maybe even now, what kind of surprised you the most about podcasting? Well, the the idea that a lot of people were using transcripts. So, and also the idea that a lot of people were listening on YouTube. Honestly, I still don't know how this works, but I'm assured by the people who follow me on YouTube that they're not going to go to a podcast platform to listen to it, but they will listen to it on YouTube. So just that idea that you can't generalize your own behavior <laughs> to the behavior of <laughs> yep. the people you want to reach. And I guess that the other thing that surprised me pleasantly was that I have been so excited by the caliber of guests I've been able to get on the podcast. And I think that if you know, and I've gotten I've gotten turned down too. So it's not like it's a magic door to talk to anybody you want to. But if you if you treat it professionally, and if you treat your your guests' time and effort with respect, that really helps. I've gotten you know, for example, um, Robert Dugoni. I had uh, Stephen James on the podcast because I had attended a webinar that I really enjoyed that he wrote, and I asked him on the podcast to talk about the topic of that webinar. And in the process of doing that, he mentioned a story about Robert Dugoni's daughter. And so, one of the things I always do, and this is this is a tip I'll share as a best practice for people who are podcasting, is never pass up an opportunity to use 
something that the guest says as a networking opportunity, because I'm much more likely to hear back from Robert Dugoni if I send him a note saying, Robert, you would just be interested that uh, your friend Stephen James shared a cute story about your daughter on the Indie Author Podcast. Here it is. It's at minute 7.10. By the way, would you like to come and talk about a topic that I knew that he was interested in talking about? And so if you pave the way, you can quickly ramp up the level of celebrity and expertise of the people that you're inviting on there. And the more you capitalize on those networking opportunities, and it's not just networking because that sounds selfish, but those opportunities to share good things with the people on the podcast. Every time someone is mentioned in a complimentary way on the podcast, I always make sure to send them a note. I've sent notes to people who have done TED Talks, um, Zach Bohannon in, in the interview he did with me talked about a TED talk that was really meaningful to him. So I found the woman's address. I sent it to her and I said, just wanted to let you know that, you know, your TED talk got a mention and there's a link in the show notes to it. And she wrote back and she said, that's so great to hear that people are, are doing that. So you're doing a service for yourself and you're doing a service for your fellow creators when you uh, spread the word about that kind of thing. Yeah. I think it's easy to forget that creators do value it when other people are talking about them it's nice to go oh something I've said or done really matters and really resonated with someone enough for them to share it with more people exactly and also I mean this is a another good opportunity I've had the experience of doing interviews with people and only months later happening upon the episode that I was in and I hadn't gone looking for it because I figured they would tell me when my episode was up so like make sure you extend that courtesy to your guests as well. Like make sure they know when their episode is up and make sure they have all the tools they need to share it easily on social media or have a nice image to use, you know, make it, make it nice for them. And, uh, that good karma will come back to you. Yeah. When I've been a guest on a couple of podcasts, they've sent me images and they, and even sometimes text to share with my network to make it as easy as possible. I remember when I was on the self-publishing show, they did a really cool graphic of a cake because obviously my site's the writer's cookbook. Uh-huh. And cake is one of my favorite foods. So I just loved it. I'm like, yeah. I don't like orange, but I'll take the fact that they've designed a cake just for me or maybe it's a stock <laughs> I don't know. But it looked really cool and it was really eye-catching and it kind of made me feel really special. It's like, oh, I've made yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and how much work was it for them to do that? Like very little in comparison to the goodwill that you know they've now engendered with you for their podcast. All too often, I see people go to all the trouble of doing a podcast uh, that involves other people. I think all podcasts involve other people one way or the other, you know, the, the effort of getting the guests and lining them up and doing the interview and all that administrative stuff. And then they just kind of let it go. And I'm like, no, no, there's still like so much good to be tapped from that. Yeah, marketing is probably more than half the challenge. It's not just the creation. It's getting as many people as possible to see and hear what you've actually created. Yep. And when you've got that big back catalog, why are, why not keep promoting it and keep bringing new people to it? Exactly. Because I was talking to Tim Lewis about networking for authors actually a few weeks ago. And he was saying like the amount of times we've got a really big backlist and we forget to share that backlist of books. Instead, we're focusing on the front list, but then actually the backlist is what makes the most money. So why aren't we, you know, trying to balance yeah. out the content we're sharing? Yeah, I have a whole, I've spent um, much of my indie career trying to figure out a way to encapsulate what I like about indie publishing. And I came up with the A, the P, the B, and the three Cs. So the benefits I think of traditional publishing are access, um, you know, unless I spend a ridiculous amount of time on it, I'm probably not going to see my book on the shelves of Barnes and Noble. It's, and I'm not spending the time on it because it's not worth it to me. And bragging rights, you know, being able to <laughs> say that I would be published by a big five, big four, big three, whatever they are now publisher, it's always going to, you know, be more bragging rights than to say I'm published by William Kingsfield Publishers, which is my own imprint. But the C's of indie publishing, I think are creativity, i.e. you don't have to be creative on anyone else's schedule. If I get bogged down in a novel, I can always switch my attention to a nonfiction book or a podcast episode or something like that. Um, control, I'm never going to have a book cover I hate. And care. So that's coming back to what you were saying about the backlist. Nobody's ever going to care about your backlist the way you do. And I'm still primarily 
promoting my first Ann Kinnear book, which came out in 2013. And it's the way to go because if I can hook them on the book one, they're going to read through the rest of the series. So don't forget your backlist in books and don't forget your backlist in podcasts either. And I do that also for podcast episodes. I'll do little extras saying, you know, back in 2019, so-and-so and and I talked about this and here's a little snippet. Here's the link where you can see the whole episode. And once again, that person sees that I'm continuing to make use of their content because I always flag them on those posts. Yeah, because I think in the script, you can create those little podcast snippets, can't you? Yeah. Like little quotables, yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah, I haven't tried that feature on it, and I probably should. Like, We don't have it at the moment, but um, it's definitely something I would like to do. I've heard of a couple more apps that you can do it on as well, so I might um, experiment with that, ready for interview season. Yeah, and even if you're just posting a straight uh, video clip, I think in some cases that's that's more engaging. I use that descript audiogram function that I think is what you're talking about, where it shows the little sound wave as the person as the words appear. And that's nice if people don't want to have video taken, but I want to have something moving on social media because that's more engaging. But uh, yeah, even just a, a audio or video clip on its own can be very effective. Yeah, all you need is a little bit to whet people's appetite about what you're going to be covering. Exactly. So speaking of the topics... How do you come up with your podcast or interview topics? Well, a lot of it, especially related to the publishing voyage, is whatever I'm struggling with at the moment. So I'm always struggling with newsletters. So every couple of months, there's going to be something about newsletters. A lot of it is what I'm curious about or what I'm hearing my circle of authors be curious about saying, oh, you know, I... I'm stuck in this with this kind of cross genre book and I'm like cross genre. That sounds interesting. I'm going to look for somebody who can talk about that. Sometimes it's that I've um, encountered someone or taken a course or read an article and have been interested by it and contact the person that way. And then on the writing craft side, it's normally people whose work I admire and uh, that I want to hear them talk about a topic that I think their work especially nicely represents And many authors are also instructors. And so it's great when you can find that person whose work you love and you know that they're going to be good at talking about it because you've experienced an online course that they've done or listened to a talk they gave at a conference or something like that. So, I mean, I'm probably revealing my own biases and needs based on the, the topics, but it's pretty wide ranging. There aren't many topics I think that we haven't covered in the coming up on 90 episodes of the podcast. Nice. I mean, if you're looking to learn, it's the perfect way to do it, isn't it? And then you do help people who are having the exact same problem because you never know how many people are having that issue as well. Right. Exactly. How about you? How do you guys pick your topics for the podcast? It started off and we just brain dumped into a list. What do we want to know more about? What can people benefit from? What things have we seen people do that they shouldn't be doing? And it is actually things like our um, indie author mistakes and newbie writer mistakes that do really well because people have got that, oh my God, I hope I'm not doing it kind of reaction to it. So those episodes are quite popular. Um, And also we did a lot on character writing because I have a book on character writing. So we were kind of using the books that we've already published as inspiration for content like we did a couple when I released the ghost call at the end of June on like pen names because I've got a second pen name for my fantasy writing and on different genres and things so some of it is inspired by what we see people talking about in our community and also it's influenced by our writing and what we wanted to know or needed to know like for the second fantasy book I'm writing there's a lot of historical research so we're probably going to do an episode on that to talk about like the process and bring in the fact my friend has a history degree although she's in a bit of denial about that because she never uses it so (laughs) yeah it is kind of a bit like yours in that it's tied into what we want to know but also things we wish we'd known like some of the mistakes and things like when people react to reviews for example that's one thing we always try and say don't do and don't let it really haunt you because they can but you need that kind of warning up front because otherwise it is hard to let it go yep. and not prepare yep. yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Just the episode that just came out this week. So we're recording this on July 14th and it was uh, how to uh, receive and give critique with Tef- Tiffany Yates Martin, because that, that is a tough one. Uh, so both hard. in kind of critique group kind of scenarios. And also we talked about, uh, do you read your reader reviews or not? That is hard. Do you read yours? I, I do. And I have been lucky that I, 
haven't gotten any, I mean, I don't read them exhaustively, so who knows what's out there. And I, I always read the good ones. Like sometimes you just need a little pick me up and you go out there and you say, just show me the five stars and you can read through those and, you know, it gives you a little boost of energy. Um, but I do read my, you know, I skim my reviews, I'd say. And it was interesting that one benefit I got out of that was that when uh, my first book, The Sense of Death came out, I was getting, you know, fortunately very good reviews. But when people marked it down, it was usually because um, of the profanity. And it's it's not that profane. But I thought, wow, well, that's, you know, that seems unfair. I'm going to go count how many F-bombs there are. <laughs> And I thought there can't be more than like, I don't know, half a dozen. So I counted and there were 19. I was like, okay, because one of the characters is like a guy who drops the F-bomb a lot. But I kind of sensed that it was interfering with the enjoyment of of what I understood to be my emerging demographic of readers. And so I went through and I assessed each instance of that word. And I thought, you know, in some of these cases, I, I think I could pull it back. And I think, you know, the story won't lose anything by it. There's somewhere I'm like, nope, that's what he would say. And so I went from like, 17 to nine or something like that. But I thought it was it was a good like market research effort to see those reviews. And then of course, the benefit of the indie author is that afternoon, I could have the updated copy out that only had nine F-bombs and that would never happen in a traditional publishing scenario. Yeah, they definitely wouldn't move that fast, would they? No, <laughs> I don't think they'd ever reissue the interior of a book just because people were unhappy with the amount of profanity. No, probably not. I think they might like consider it for the second edition, but that would be like years down the line if yeah. they do a second edition. And that depends on if the book is popular enough in the first place. Right, right. So going back to podcasting, what types of writer do you think could benefit the most from podcasting? I think that any type of writer could, as long as their expectations are aligned with the effort they're willing to put into it. So if your expectation, if your goal is that you want an excuse to be able to talk with other people in the writing and publishing world and and make it attractive to them by sharing that out in a podcast scenario, then great. You know, you could be very, uh, very likely be successful with that goal in mind with a very basic podcast without doing any marketing. If your goal is to make money, then you need to make sure that the actions that you're taking are aligned with the goal of making money. And you have to maybe up the professionalism level. You, you know, have to put in more marketing effort. And so I don't think it's it's like good for some writers and not good for some writers. It's just a matter of, of the alignment. Um, I think you uh, need to do your homework to understand what that is. And I also think you have to understand what kind of interaction you want to have with people. You know, sometimes I hear people say that they want to do a podcast because they have a lot of information to share with people. And that's great if you're doing a solo podcast, but if you want to have guests, then you better be a person who also enjoys listening to people. And so also aligning it not only with your business goals and creative goals, but your personal strengths and weaknesses. So yeah, I think it can work for anybody depending on what the goal is and, and what you can bring to it. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, I think. What about you then? What has podcasting taught you about yourself or your writing? Well, one of the things that's taught me is that I never really want to do a live event. <laughs> I love doing recorded things because, you know, if things go really off the rails, then uh, it's not as tragic. But yeah, I think it's I think it's taught me about myself that I think I am a good listener on my own podcast, but that I, as I'm demonstrating here in my answer to you, I'm less good on the on the instant response. And so that's another reason I like the recording, because if I have to go, hmm, for a few seconds, I can do that. And then on the writing front, I would say that what it has taught me about my writing is that other people very successful and popular people who write in the crime fiction genre as I do bring really, really different <laughs> approaches to it than I do. So I'm, I would say when I first my, wrote my first book, I was sort of a between a plotter and a pantser. And I wrote that first book by writing, by having one chapter very clearly in mind, a chapter that was maybe like a third of the way through the book. And I wrote that wrote it, polished it, wrote it, polished it. And then I had to write the whole book leading up to that scene and the whole story leading away from it, which was very a very, very inefficient way of writing a book. It took me two and a half years to write that book. And once I left my day job, I knew that 
two and a half years between books is not really going to be sustainable. And so I've become more and more of a plotter and really trying to pin down a story um, in a spreadsheet uh, before I dive too deep on the details. I mean, I and I don't do that as strictly as I'm making it sound, but the more I can move to that end of the spectrum, then the more quickly I can write high quality books. But just crime fiction writer after crime fiction writer came on the podcast and they were like, I'm always interested to see where the story will take me. And I'm like, seriously, you're writing like a mystery and you don't know how it ends. And so I I think I learned from that, not that I have to be more of a pantser, but that there are really different approaches that people can take that will end with a high quality, successful and potentially popular book. Um, yeah. And that you you should listen to those different approaches and think about them, but you shouldn't necessarily run after them if they seem, again, incompatible with your style. It's aligning your how you're approaching it with what your strengths are and what your goals are. Yeah, it can be really hard sometimes, I think. And one of the most intimidating things I found was trying to come up with a plotting system that worked because I didn't have anything for my first book. And... I got about halfway through it and started to get a bit lost. And I'm like, well, this is going to get worse when there are five books in this series. And then there's a spinoff series and another spinoff series and another spinoff. I'm like, I kind of need to write all this down. So I created yeah. a spreadsheet of like everything from birthdays to when I kill off characters to when people meet and stuff, just so that I got that consistency. And I'm how many books into the series am I now? I'm about 10 books into the universe and I'm still referring back to that spreadsheet. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. And I found the way it plays out for me is my books are, are very much dependent on who knows what, when. And so if I don't think through it, you know, I've had this, the situation where I've almost go, gone down a path writing as if a character knows something that if I step back and look at it, I realize they either don't know or they shouldn't know that it's better that they don't know or shouldn't know. And that's so much easier to do if you're playing with like a a 10,000 word outline, I'll, I'll say, because, you know, my, my outline isn't just bullet points. It's quite beefy. And that really paid off for me in The Falcon and the Owl, which is uh, the fourth book, because I mean, the, my third Anne Kinnear book, because I wrote up this beefy outline. I sent it to my editor and I said, can you just take a look at this before I start writing? And he got back to me and he said, well, I think you really have to make the bad guy badder because at the end, I'm, I'm not really buying it. And I thought about that for a while and I talked to him and I said, I ended up saying, I don't, I don't think that person's badder. I think I picked the wrong bad guy. You know, I think I have to rework it to make somebody else be the bad guy. And that was a lot easier to do with 10,000 words on the page than it would have been with 80,000 words on the page. So yeah, definitely. Um, this like, oh, I'm curious to see where this is going to go just freaks me out. Yeah, I don't outline and the thought just makes me want to have a panic attack. But I do write quite extensive notes. I bullet point yeah. everything and I make sure I know how things happen. That's the really important thing for me is I can write down what happens, but if I don't know how something happens, that's when I'm likely to get stuck. And nearly every scene that I've got stuck on the last, I don't even know how many times, it's been because I didn't know how to execute something. So I'd usually end up skipping that scene and writing the next one and trying to figure it out retrospectively. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the other really important thing if, if you're doing something like uh, fantasy or sci-fi is writing out the how it happens in a very literal way, you know, yeah. the, the, this was possible because there's no gravity on this planet. Well, there better never be gravity on that planet then, because if you don't maintain the consistency of your story, then, you know, you're yeah. going to lose the readers. That was something my editor really pushed me on when I was writing my first fantasy book. She was like, how does this work? How does that work? I'm like, I hate you. And then yeah. I'm like, actually, I know you're right. And I still hate you, but I love you. And it's like, she, but it was one of those things because she writes fantasy as well and she was saying like if you know these things now it saves you time and energy in the future having to figure them out or shooting yourself in the foot because you're being inconsistent and even though a lot of the things I worked out I'm not going to need until book four five six etc because I know it now I can foreshadow things or make sure there aren't inconsistencies yeah I can't even imagine uh more power to you that you're having like a vision across multiple books because that is something that that with the Anne Kinnear books it really doesn't matter there's there's sort of an arc for Anne but it's you know the arc is 
the arc is more of an upward trajectory of her feeling more comfortable with her uh, special ability, which is that she can uh, communicate with dead people. But each book is is pretty much self-contained. But when I wrote the first Lizzie Ballard book, I didn't know that it was going to be more than just one. And then I got to the end of that and I was like, well, clearly there's more story here. I wrote a second one and then I wrote the third one, but I didn't have an idea of that three story arc when I started. And that made it so much harder. I mean, I'm pleased (laughs) now with how that came out, but it was a lot more work than if I'd gone into it saying, okay, it's going to be three stories and it's going to be divided this way. Yeah, that's why I did the plan because my first series, I always knew it'd be four or five books. And then my second series was meant to be one and that turned into six. (laughs) But I always kind of know where I want the characters to start and end up either in that book or in that series. And with um, Afterlife Calls, I always knew the kind of first arc of that would be four books because I've got a very clear end point for where the two characters need to be for each one. And then beyond that, I'm like, okay, what ghostly tropes can I play with and have fun with? Because there is an element of comedy in this series as well. And it gets quite dark in book four. So I'm like, how can I lighten it up after that? (laughs) And I find that if I plan in advance, then I can figure out those plot holes before I start writing and also quite often I'm planning two or three books ahead in a series compared to what I'm writing so then I can think about what I want to foreshadow and what needs changing in the plan based on how the book is I'm writing has gone yeah that's that's very impressive (laughs) it it gets stuff out my head that's why I plan everything so far ahead because otherwise my head is just full of stories and things to do with my characters I I don't have the headspace to sit and write and that's why I quite like writing either in the morning or at night because my brain has already switched off and it's not thinking about other things. So my characters get my attention and I'm not worrying about it. All the creative stuff, all the problem solving has already been done in the planning process. So then I'm just getting the words out onto the page. And the worst part is if my hands hurt from typing too fast. (laughs) That's a good problem to have. That's, (laughs) that's very interesting. Yeah. I like that idea of like, that's another one of those things that everybody says, get up first thing in the morning and write. I'm like, well, yeah, give it a try. But if it doesn't work for you, don't keep hammering away at it. Yeah. yeah, I did try that actually writing the, my third afterlife goals book. And I finished a draft of it a couple of days ago. And then I, do you ever just feel really drained after writing something? Cause that was me. (laughs) I was a zombie for about, um, I don't know, three or four days. Cause I wrote three really heavy scenes in two days. Uh from like two different books and I was like I really don't think I can keep doing this morning routine right now I need a break from writing because I'm emotionally exhausted yeah and I think there are considerations too like if I don't get all my admin stuff out of the way first then it's kind of hanging over my head and if I can bang that out then I can switch my attention to fiction uh, with less distraction yeah I'm the opposite um if I I don't like mornings at all but I like writing in the morning because my brain isn't awake enough to do the admin stuff. <laughs> so it, it can only focus on the writing or like playing with the dog because it requires as little effort and energy as possible. And then by the, time I, by the time I finish my writing session, I'm like, okay, I really need breakfast now or I'm raring to go and I need to do some exercise or something. And it just kind of, it does inspire me for the day and give me a sense of accomplishment. Although I should say I haven't done any writing for the, in the mornings for the last couple of days. And I feel like I've been less productive in those days, not just in terms of writing, but in terms of everything that I do, I've had less motivation. Very interesting. Yeah, everybody's everybody's wired a little differently for that. Yeah, considering I absolutely detest mornings, but I was enjoying my morning <laughs> writing. And I think I know what book I'm going to draft next now as well, after my little break. And it's something with a happier ending. So that probably helps. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it is interesting. You were saying earlier about how your, uh, you know, your books had a humorous twist, but it was sort of a darker humor. And it's interesting for you to think through even like the arc of the of the kind of humor, because that's something, again, that's kind of a convenience of reading reader reviews that sometimes I'll read one and people people emphasize the the humorous aspects. Like one of my books, The Falcon and the Owl does have a more humorous subplot of uh, this group of people who have gotten together and they're trying to make it a, a uh, documentary, but it goes downhill right away. And so it's just all infighting and sniping at each other. And and I thought I thought it was funny, but it was good to read reviews and see that other people thought it was funny also. <laughs> yeah, it's reassuring, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. There's a seance scene in The Ghost Call, and it was a last minute edition before I sent it to beta readers. 
And nearly everyone commented on the same things like, oh my God, I love Javi. I need more of him in the book because he haunts his ex-wife, basically. Uh And um, I'm like, wow, he's decided he's going to be in this series for the foreseeable future, even though he was meant to be in like two scenes. So you've got your wish. Yep. Exactly. (laughs) I just can't get rid of him. It is is great market research if you can uh, ignore, you know, any nastiness that leaks into the reader reviews. Yeah, yeah. I do know someone who reads her negative reviews as kind of a way to find feedback and ways to improve her writing. But obviously you have to filter out the people projecting or who just don't like swear words or the kind of silly things people comment on that aren't really of any substance that you inevitably get. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I've been running Facebook ads and I do try to interact with all the people who comment on the Facebook ads. And most of them, fortunately, have been very positive. And that's been nice because then I invite those people to my author page. And once they're in the author page, I invite them to a private Facebook group. And so I feel like I have this this nice funnel into really being able to interact quite directly with readers. One of them, so I was using a, an, an author blurb in the ad and someone took exception to the way the author had provided the blurb had used this one word. Uh, she thought it, it should be a different word. She thought she had used it inappropriately, that the, the, the person who wrote the blurb didn't understand what the word meant. So I, I looked up both the word that the author had used and the word that this person said it should be. And I was like, you know what? They're both fine. They mean slightly different things. But I, it was all I could do <laughs> not to go on there and post. Like, here's the Merriam-Webster definition of what that word means. So you explain to me why it doesn't make sense. But so far, I've avoided doing that. So far. <laughs> so far. The temptation is strong, though. <laughs> it's fading over time. So I think if I've yeah. gotten this far, I'll be able to continue to resist. Yeah. The longer you avoid it, the easier it becomes. Exactly. Talking about your writing then and podcasting, how have you found podcasting has affected your writing? Well, I think that in some cases, and maybe this is just a self-fulfilling prophecy, it has enabled me to to tweak how I approach my writing. I mean, certainly, um, you know, I, I had mentioned that um, episode I did with Stephen James, and I think the name of that episode was uh, 12 Things You Can Do to Kill the Suspense in Your Novel. So that's just straight <laughs> out educational. You know, you that's just read title. that and you say, okay, I have to I have to make sure I'm not doing these 12 things. It, it was a really fun, he had a really fun way of going about it. Um, so certainly... You know, I feel like I'm gleaning craft tips uh, every time I talk to somebody about craft. And from the writing process point of view, I think in many cases, it's made me feel comfortable with the process I had. One of my favorite episodes was episode 30, Common Writer Wisdom, Is It Right for You with Becca Syme? I, I loved her approach, which is that it's not one size fits all. And there are all these things people say, like, write first thing in the morning, or make sure you get 100 words, or whatever, that work fine for some people, like there are tropes you hear because they've worked for some amount of people, but that you have to think about whether they're right for you. And one of the things that I felt more comfortable about my writing process after having um, talked with Becca on the podcast is that I, I'm not a, I'm not even a writing fiction everyday kind of person, but I realized that I'm always writing in my head. And so I'll take the dog for a walk. I'll I'll be driving somewhere on errands. I'll be folding laundry. And I'm, I'm really writing because I'm composing, composing, composing. And then when I sit down, it's kind of like, Bleh. and I'm not saying it's clean, but it's, you know, I'll go for three days without writing anything. And then I'll write 4,000 words because it's all been percolating, you know? And so some of it is just relieving me of that angst of maybe I'm doing it wrong. And uh, so that's been nice. But also then picking out those things where, well, is this something I really should look at? Because maybe I am suboptimizing. You know, like this idea that maybe I do need to move toward the the plotter, you know, continue pushing myself toward the plotter side. I've spoken to about three people now who've mentioned outlining and I'm like, is this something I should be doing? And then my brain goes, no, you do not need that much depth. You would die of boredom if you fleshed it out in that much depth. It's not that your writing style, as long as you know the key scenes and how stuff happens, you're fine. But then further down the line, I might change my mind. You know, I'm open to the concept, but right now it's not for me. And you've just got to maintain that open mind that there are different ways of doing things. And you might find that what works now isn't going to work in the future. But if you've studied those other ways of doing it, then you can always adapt because you've exactly. already got those tools. Yeah. Talking about you then, mm-hmm. what one book have you read that's changed your life? 
That is such a tough question. <laughs> and I think I would say uh, The Sword in the Stone. So The Sword in the Stone was my first favorite book. And uh, my parents read it to me when I was little. And then when I got older, I read it myself. And it wasn't like, you know, I was six and and read it and said, you know, oh, my life is different. But I think that it's such a it's such a great book. It's such a classic. And in retrospect, of course, these weren't lessons that I took from it until much later, but I think it, it paved the way for understanding that writing in a way that's accessible to children it does not preclude writing in a way that's entertaining and engaging for adults, that even taking a story that's been done before, it's King Arthur, for heaven's sake, can be done in a new and fresh and engaging way. Um, the fact that you can drop in, you know, these these just tear jerking kind of moments with, you know, laugh out loud, funny moments in, in one story, the idea that you can have characters who are, are not strictly good or bad. You know, I think of Kay, uh, Arthur's adoptive brother and kind of what a jerk he is. And yet you understand why Arthur as the protagonist loves him. I just think it was a great early example of a, a wonderfully written book that, that I loved. And then as I grew older and studied craft more, I kind of understood more why I loved it that much. I really like that. I've certainly found going back through stuff I used to enjoy when I was younger, I now understand why I enjoyed it as well. And I can spot where it influenced me as well, which then yeah. just makes me a little bit embarrassed how, some things inf how much some things influenced me. <laughs> So where can our listeners go to find out more about you? They can go to um, maddiedalrymple.com if they're interested in my fiction work. So that's Maddie with a Y, M-A-T-T-Y, maddiedalrymple.com. And if they're interested in the nonfiction, it's at theindieauthor.com. And it's indie with a Y, I-N-D-Y. And I would love it if they would check out the Indie Author Podcast. It's a really great podcast. I was listening to it the other day when I was driving up to meet Ellie. And it was the episode you did with Jenna Marisi talking about oh, yeah, I think it's yeah, right yeah. villains or something yes oh, uh -huh. this is really interesting oh can I use this that <laughs> like, was must pay attention to the sat nav <laughs> that was a super fun one she was super fun to talk was, to yeah thank you so much for joining us this has been a really great chat oh thank you thank you so much for the invitation I've really enjoyed it thank you take care did you find this episode enlightening don't forget to hit that shiny shiny subscribe button so that you never miss an episode or if you're watching on youtube make sure you subscribe and hit the like button it helps other writers to find us and it lets us know what type of content you want more of and don't forget you can support the writer's mindset over on patreon for as little as your favorite coffee a month join our growing gang of writers and get early access to episodes bonus content and writing workshops visit patreon.com forward slash writer's mindset to find out more see you next time keep writing